We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Now, Major League Soccer bears very little resemblance to what we started 25 years ago. But I'm proud of the fact that there's an entire generation that doesn't know or care about the challenges, struggles, and fears of the past. I don't want them to. That's progress. That's growth. And as proud as I am about what we've accomplished over the last 25 years, I'm more interested in the next 25. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about Major League Soccer's 25th year celebration. In our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to be talking about the good and bad of teams like Liverpool dominating their league. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the gift of Jermaine Jones. He just keeps on giving. In our back three, we'll be talking about another gift, the gift of VAR, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my Guiding Light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday morning? I am good. Uh, I'm told you have a weird question to ask me. It's not, it's not a weird question. What, what, do you have a drink, uh, a favorite drink out there? Uh, if you go Coca-Cola. to a bar, huh? Oh, like an alcoholic yeah. beverage? Yeah, an actual alcoholic beverage there. I drink you, a lot of beer, Jack and Coke. Are you a, Coke. a beer snob like our friend uh, John Strong in that you go in and uh, you want a special type of beer? Or a, would, you, would, you, would you drink a Budweiser? I would drink a Budweiser. You would drink a Budweiser. It's amazing you mentioned Budweiser. I was reading an article today about the uh, Bud Light seltzer phenomenon. Have you heard about this? You may have seen some of the advertisements out there. This, uh, hold up. There's hard, hard seltzer out there where they infuse seltzer with, uh, with alcohol. And this Bud Light phenomenon, it's uh, Bud Light seltzer, which they introduced, and they flooded the market with it. And it's inc- become incredibly popular. Have you ever had a, you've never had a Bud Light seltzer or any type of hard lemonade? Do you have any of those types of no, stuff? No. You, you're a straight beer guy. Correct. Well, back in the day, before you were even born, Mossy, when I was a delinquent uh, running around uh, the uh, wilds of uh, suburban Detroit, uh, 17-ish, 16-ish, and uh, you run around and you try to find somebody that will buy for you in buying alcohol. Uh, there was a whole phenomenon back in the 80s of uh, wine coolers. Uh, they were a big, big thing. And these are the 
the next generation, I guess, if you will, of uh, wine coolers. And I'm going to tell this story because I know how much John Strong doesn't hate it, but he's just heard it a hundred times in that. So back then, while I was that del- delinquent, during the day in school, we would have either people that had the fake ID or find somebody who had a real ID to go down to the liquor store to buy us stuff that would, we then would stash for our weekends or for our uh, or for our weeknights, for that matter. And obviously, growing up in Michigan, most of the time it was very cold, and oftentimes it was incredibly cold with snow. And I'll never forget one Friday, finally getting the person to buy, and then getting this uh, incredibly valuable stash, and then stashing it away outside while we waited for school to come to an end. And then at the end of the day, picking up our stash of wine coolers. They were not only wine coolers, they were Bartles and James wine coolers, and they were two-liter bottles. Problem is that in Michigan, because it's so cold, they had frozen solid. And so whenever I see this type of seltzer or hard alcohol or, or, or hard uh, lemonade or all that kind of stuff. I think back to the night I spent cradling this two-liter bottle of Bartles and James wine cooler, trying in vain to get it to melt as quickly as possible, passing it around, blanketing it as we went from house to house and party to party to try to get just a little bit of a sip out of it. It's amazing the lengths that you will go to in order to one, uh, procure any type of alcoholic beverage when you are a delinquent. And then in this case, because of the uh, weather, to try to have it melt so you can actually drink it. Do you have a story like that about wine coolers? I know you don't have a story about wine coolers, but have you ever had a wine cooler? I don't think so. It's just a straight beer man. Yeah. You're a good, solid American, my friend. Budweiser and, uh, and, and that's it. Well, your task this week is to go out there and for the pod, try one of these. And we, we're not getting anything from Budweiser. I want to be very, very clear. But I want you to try one of these and tell me what you think in the 2020 version of the wine cooler, if you will, how this compares. What do you think uh, this is? Because it's it's becoming a phenomenon, at least uh, at least for now. Did you do anything else this weekend besides not drink wine coolers and or seltzer, hard seltzer or Bud Light seltzer? No, no. Just work and uh, relaxed afterwards. A little hiking on Sunday, and that's really? about it. Yeah, You're yeah. back up in the uh, in the mountains. Yep. yep Mountain yep. man Mossy with his Budweiser. God, throw an American flag out there. Awesome. Love it. I love it. All right, Mossy, I'm done talking about uh, wine coolers. You ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. This week, Major League Soccer kicks off its 25th season. As the old saying goes, you've come a long way, baby. From the Wild West beginnings at the turn of the century, marked by contraction, football stadiums and those football lines, and simply fighting to keep the lights on, to the modern era and the roaring teens marked by rapid expansion, increased relevancy, soccer-specific stadia, and billions in investment. Now, Major League Soccer bears very little resemblance to what we started 25 years ago. This 25th year celebration provides an opportunity for reflection and stories about the not-so-good old days. But I'm proud of the fact that there's an entire generation that doesn't know or care about the challenges, struggles, and fears of the past. I don't want them to. That's progress, that's growth. I'm glad there's a generation that expects more and isn't satisfied. Their new reality is what we once dreamed of. Our American soccer tradition is often to kick ourselves for what we aren't or what we haven't done. But it's also okay to take a moment to pat ourselves on the back for what we are and what we have done. For MLS, this is that moment. 
And then it's back to work. Because MLS is much more about the future than the past. Yes, I'm biased. MLS is a labor of love. It is la cosa nostra. It's our thing, warts and all. MLS is an imperfect league. But it is also, by any measure, far and away the most successful professional soccer league in American history. And as proud as I am about what we've accomplished over the last 25 years, I'm more interested in the next 25. Because, as another old saying goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. All right, Mossy, uh, there is a uh, little love letter, if you will, to Major League Soccer and what has happened over the 25 years. And yes, the moment when uh, MLS should be celebrated. Now, I know, I know oftentimes I am accused of being a uh, shill for the league and a shill for the establishment and in the bag. Just so uh, full disclosure, I have no financial interest uh, in the league other than, yes, we, we, uh, we cover the league here. Yes, I have done appearances for Major League Soccer, for Major League Soccer teams. I've also done appearances for other leagues and other other teams uh, around the country, but I don't own a piece of Major League Soccer. I wish I had the David Beckham clause so that I actually owned an MLS team. I don't uh, have a uh, business interest and don't own a piece of Soccer United marketing, the marketing arm of Major League Soccer, but it is something that is personal to me. It is something that, as I said in the State of the Union, is uh, la cosa nostra. Do you think that Major League Soccer, do you think, first off, do you think it's it's worthy of celebrating right now, or uh, do you feel like, why, why are we doing this? No, absolutely, it's worthy of celebration. There's some people that don't. There's some people that just want to watch the world burn and think that Major League Soccer is actually detrimental to the future of American soccer. No, I moved to this country from Brazil in the early 90s, so I experienced this country without a domestic soccer league, and I saw the whole evolution of it up to now. And uh, when it first started, there were a lot of skeptics out there. So the fact that we've reached 25 years and the league is growing and in the shape that it's in, I absolutely think it's a, it's a nice milestone and a chance to reflect on the past and, and look ahead to the future. For but sure. you've also said that, notwithstanding the fact that you are a soccer fan, if you hadn't been, to a certain extent, forced to examine Major League Soccer because of the work that we do and the association that we have with Major League Soccer, there's a good chance that you would be one of those people that either doesn't, it just doesn't register on their soccer radar, or they specifically look at it as inferior and therefore don't look at it as relevant. Perhaps, but mm -hmm. it's growing, and I think uh, it's definitely getting better each year, and, I, and, and it's, I think it would have been on my radar by now for sure. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to paint you into a, a corner here of what you are. Can I ask or, you a couple yeah, of, of uh, yeah, big ticket items before sure. we hone in on the 2020 season? Sure. Uh, expansion. Uh, we're now up to 26 teams, right. Inter-Miami and Nashville being the latest additions, and we're going to be up to 30 by 2022 because Austin, Charlotte, St. Louis, and Sacramento are already lined up. Uh, I know you get asked this question a lot. Uh, how much is enough? And, and you're bullish that they should keep going. I'm bullish because I, I can envision a scenario uh, in the future. And look, I, 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 as I said before, I'll be real honest, I did not envision, in, back in 96 when we stepped on the field, I did not envision this type of success and certainly this type of growth. Yes, we had, uh, yes, we were positive about the future, but to, to, to see what Major League Soccer is today is not something that, uh, uh, that I envisioned. But I also, given the fact that Having a Major League Soccer team, I think, looks very, very attractive for a number of, pe number of businesses out there and for business reasons out there. I can see it continuing because I can envision a Major League Soccer 1, if you will, and a Major League Soccer 2 in a two-division type of thing and an intra-MLS type of promotion relegation. Now, I know the, the Pro-Rel folks out there look at that as a bastardized version of that, but that's the type of 
potential markets out there that still aren't in Major League Soccer that I think would see uh, Major League Soccer as being attractive. And so I don't think that it stops, nor do I think that it necessarily should going forward. What about, I almost asked this question at the MLS seminar that we Mm -hmm. attended at Fox last week, but I was a little bit intimidated. There were so many celebrities in the room. (laughs) MLS has been dinged in the past for having too much parity. Mm-hmm. While we know in Europe, the issue is the other right. way, and the leagues have become top-heavy and predictable. And I think most of us agree there's a happy medium there. Do you think MLS has reached that happy medium or is still working towards that? And how much does this latest CBA play into that? The, the catch-22 is that the league has been built on the manufactured parity. It's one of the things that, for me, has made it unique but, and has made it attractive and has made it entertaining, let's be honest. However, I think, and certainly from a broadcasting perspective, having super clubs, and I've talked about super clubs for a long time, but having those clubs that as many people hate as love, having those clubs that those people that hate them hate them because they spend so much money and because they are so good for so long, those are the types of clubs that people want to watch and that countries want to watch. And so, as I said, the problem is getting away from the unique aspect of that parody that makes it so interesting and putting the power and therefore having that separation happen to those teams that will then become the attraction. And how does that relate to everybody else? And this, this, is, a, this is a collective. This is a single entity, and you're only as strong as your weakest team. So uh, I don't know how this ends. I do think there's already we've already started to see a, a separation. I think it will only get more pronounced. And while that may destroy the original parody that was so interesting and made it so unique relative to leagues around the world, it may be the course forward in terms of being successful, especially when it comes from a broadcast perspective. In terms of the 2020 season, some interesting new coaches, Thierry Henry in Montreal, Tab mm-hmm. Ramos in Houston, Rafael Wicke in Chicago, Diego Alonso in Miami. Is there one that intrigues you the most? And I know in the past there was this notion that the MLS rules are so quirky that you're better off having Americans in these positions coaching in front office. Do you think we're sort of past that now and Tata Martino has kind of put that to bed? And how oh, do you I see think, all that? I think the league has gone very much away from the domestic type of league that it was maybe originally seen as or envisioned as. Uh, and that's not a, a bad thing. It's just a, a reality. And whether it's the coaching or whether it's the, uh, whether it's the players, or whether it's just the natural progression of being a, a sport and a league that involves a sport that involves the, the entire world. And that's just uh, something that's going to happen. When it comes to the, you know, the stories, I mean, there's so many stories in, in, in MLS this year. And you mentioned just, just from a coaching perspective, when you got a guy like Thierry Henry and the, the age-old question that's not MLS specific, it's just can a guy that was so good on the field be able to be successful as a coach, being able to actually talk about it? And the jury is still out with him. I mean, one of the great players ever to play the game as a player as a coach, we'll, we'll see if he can be a, a Pep-esque type of uh, a figure and live up to what he was on the field from a coaching perspective. I don't have high hopes for, for Montreal, and that's not necessarily even because of Thierry Henry, but you know, he's, the, he's the coach right now. I'm really interested in Tab Ramos because it is his first professional coaching gig, and we've known that he is, at least I've believed that he is a good coach, but 
a club situation is very, very different than coaching a youth national team or being involved in a youth uh, or, or being involved in a national team program. So that's the kind of stuff. I will be heading to Nashville this weekend uh, to check out the you know expansion is always a, a big topic when it comes to Major League Soccer. So I'll be heading, heading to Nashville to see how they look in their first ever game in MLS. They're playing against Atlanta. Then I'll actually be going to Portland for Portland and against the Loons out there. So I'll be all over the place this week uh, when it comes to Major League Soccer. And yes, I... I'm not going to apologize for loving Major League Soccer. And I know it's not everybody's bag. Some people like it, some uh, some people don't. And as I said before, if you don't like it, fine. We can have a discussion as to why you don't like it. But to simply ignore it uh, or poo-poo it, if you, if you will, because of the structure uh, or because it doesn't have pro-rel or something like that, I think I think you're missing out on a piece that can really add something to your soccer palette. It doesn't, and by the way, just because you like a, a, a follow MLS doesn't mean you can't follow all the, all the other leagues. MLS gets that. I, I get that. That's what, that's what we all do. But I think there's a real reticence at times from people because they view it as inferior. And I can understand that. I can respect that for a little bit. But you know, oftentimes, the environment, the experience, as I said, is so different and so unique in a good way that I think you're, you're leaving something on the table that could be really, really good for your soccer experience in America and North America. In terms of new signings, we yeah. know a big story has been MLS fishing in the Liga MX pond. Yep. Guys like Rodolfo Pizarro, Edison Flores, Alan Pulido. Is there one signing, it doesn't have to be from Liga MX, but one signing that you're most excited about, you can't wait to see how this player looks in MLS? I think look, Chicharito, because I still have my doubts. He's going to sell a lot of tickets. He's going to sell a lot of jerseys. He's going to bring a lot of people into the tent that weren't there before. But from a pure soccer perspective and replacing Zlatan, he is not that type of player. He cannot create for his, uh, on his own. He needs people feeding him. Now, they might feed him and he might just be eating up everything in the box, but he's not going to get the ball, turn, Hit a, hit a worldie. He's not going to get the ball, dribble through three people, and create something for himself. And so that's, I'm fascinated to see how it plays out. I want him to do well. I think he'll score goals. But if it doesn't, if he's not a superstar, then I think that's a problem uh, for the Galaxy. It's a problem for him. And it'll be really interesting to see the reaction to if Chicharito is not, is not successful. Let me say, I, I think signing Mexican players and Liga MX stars is definitely the biggest story. It sets up a really I know he wasn't playing in Liga fun MX, year in the U.S.-Mexico rivalry with CCL and the All-Star game. And then at the national team level, hopefully they meet in the Nations League final and then later on in the Hex. But a secondary sort of under-the-radar story, I'm a little bit biased here, but... Uh, humor me for a second, is Brazilians. We had a really fun night last Thursday in the CCL. I know we're going to talk about CCL later, yep. but um, Eder had a hat trick for NYCFC against Whoa, who, Carlos. Who, what? Eber, dude. Eber. Okay. Right. Um, first MLS player ever with a hat trick in the CONCACAF Champions League. And then later on in the same night, João Paulo had an excellent debut for Seattle, John scored Paolo. a goal. Yep. And there's something happening here. And, uh, uh, Paul Gardner wrote a column in the mid-2000s in World Soccer Magazine, I remember reading it, saying that the final frontier for the Premier League to conquer was to be able to attract Brazilian stars because up to that point, Brazilians had avoided the Premier League. They gravitated more to Spain and Italy. And the Premier League has achieved that. Now it's filled with Brazilian players. And 
to some extent, there's a similar thing happening with MLS because Brazilians, for whatever reason, have not bought into MLS uh, as much as some of the other South American nations. And it's still a journeyman type player that's coming here. The Brazilian equivalent of Christian Pavon is still not coming to MLS. But I think there have been some positive steps here. I know Eber, Eber was already here, <laughs> but you've had this influx now. João Paulo in Seattle, Thiago Santos um, at FC Dallas, Mateus Joseto at Atlanta United. Um, th- those are good players that were like good, solid players in the Brazilian league that are all in their 20s. Or uh, Thiago Santos might actually be 30 by now. But but you, you know what I mean. I think that's a positive step. I'm excited for it. I don't like that we Brazilians have sort of ceded this turf to the Argentines. I want to see a bigger Brazilian presence in MLS. So I'm excited about it. So on a personal level, that's one of the little subplots that I'm looking forward to in this season. I've never heard of any of those players you just mentioned in, in that I've never heard them pronounced like that. So before we wrap this up, um, you mentioned the uh, seminar that we had and uh, we got together all the people that are going to be covering MLS. MLS actually as a, as a league came in and talked to us. We had the uh, LAFC uh, folks come in and talk to us about the supporters culture, which is when we could do a whole pot on the supporters culture and, and what that is and stuff like that. But I mentioned in my State of the Union that while this is a time to celebrate and, and, and rightfully so, what is, what MLS has accomplished. It's unprecedented when you put it up against any other sport or league around the world in terms of how far it's become. Balance, I think, is in, in, in order here because I meet young folks out there uh, that have that never saw the likes of me play or never saw uh, the Tampa Bay mutiny or anything like that. And yet, they look at MLS for what it is now and maybe what it is, uh, what it is going to be. And so, Yes, there's a historical perspective that I think can be of value, but as they celebrate this 25th year, I think what you're going to see more often is that while you've come a long way, baby, as I said before, um, the best is yet to come and frame it as a push forward as opposed to a look back. Yeah, I don't want to step on our VAR chat we're going to have later on, but I I loved Howard Webb's presentation. And one stat that really jumped out to me, he said, there were 1,257 goals scored in MLS last season. And while everyone is automatically reviewed, only 41 triggered like a full-blown review of the referee running to the monitor. And so 98% of the goals scored didn't trigger that. And so Howard Webb pushed back a little bit against this notion that VAR has taken away that that celebratory moment after scoring a goal. He said that he encourages players in MLS to celebrate after you scored a goal because there's a the 98% are, yeah. chance that that, <laughs> that moment is not going to be taken away from you. Exactly. I think when it really comes down to the, the VAR, uh, VAR is always better when Howard Webb is involved. Uh, I think we can uh, agree that. It was, it was a great presentation, um, and we had a, a really good time. Uh, and I think it was valuable for everybody because each year more and more people want to be involved with Major League Soccer because they see where it's going. And so we're bringing as many different people into the tent. And there were people in that league that had never watched Major League Soccer, and there were people like me that have been around since, uh, since the beginning. So uh, we will continue to celebrate the 25 years of Major League Soccer, but as I said, with a look forward, because I think the, uh, the best days are, uh, are yet to come, whether it's expansion uh, or whether it's just a, uh, uh, an increased presence and an increased relevancy both in the markets and around the world with the talent that is on the field, whether it's a potential influx of Brazilian players over there or anybody else. I think this league has done a really good job. And as I said before, it is not perfect. 
It has had plenty of step-ups along the way, as you can as you can imagine. And it is absolutely fair at times to criticize MLS for things that it does on and off the field, uh, and we do that. But we also try to have uh, some perspective and, as I said, be fair. Because if you put this league up against any league in the world, against any sport, it's unprecedented how far it has come in a short period of time. You extrapolate out what has happened over the last 25 years, and you look at that next 25 years, uh, some really good things uh, could happen, not just for Major League Soccer, but for soccer in the United States. And it doesn't mean that other leagues and other teams can't rise up and can't continue to grow. MLS is only part of the American soccer experience, is only part of the American soccer landscape, but it is a huge and growing part of it. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again, time for Mossy Makes the Case. What are you casing for this week, my friend? My case is that domestic bliss can lead to European pain. Ooh. Last week, the Champions League round of 16 got underway, and for the first time ever, all the teams came from Europe's top five leagues. Five leagues that are providing a fascinating contrast at the top of their respective tables. Three of them, Spain, Italy, and Germany, have fantastic title races going on, while two others, England and France, are already done and dusted. And I found it interesting that the two teams that are running away with their leagues, Liverpool and PSG, both produced subpar performances and lost. Liverpool fell to Atletico Madrid. PSG were beaten by Borussia Dortmund. Now, I'd hate to mistake coincidence for causation, but it did make me wonder if being so superior to your domestic opponents can have a negative effect in the Champions League. For PSG, this is an old problem rearing its ugly head. Thomas Tuchel still doesn't know what his best formation is, and there wasn't a single league on game in the last two months that he could use to replicate facing Borussia Dortmund. He opted for a 3-4-3, and in the press conference afterwards, he was almost laughed out of the room when he defended his decision by saying that formation worked against Dijon. (laughs) Liverpool is an even more interesting case. The notion that a Premier League club could suffer from the lack of competitiveness of its domestic league flies in the face of everything the English stand for, but Liverpool did take the field against Atletico Madrid, holding a 22-point lead atop the Premier League standings. Now, whether that's because Liverpool are abnormally good or the Premier League this season is abnormally bad is an issue we're going to tackle in a second. But I couldn't help but hearkening back to last season when so many people told me that Liverpool would have to pick and choose between the Premier League and the Champions League because they couldn't possibly try to win both. That proved to be nonsense. Liverpool won their last nine Premier League games, were unbeaten in their last 17. They finished with 97 points and they won the Champions League. Their only Premier League defeat all season came in January, the only month where they didn't have a Champions League game. The bottom line for me is that the Champions League knockout stage is not that physically taxing. The games are spread out. It averages out to an extra game and a half a month. And I think you're better off going into those games in the flow of playing intense, difficult matches. Both Liverpool and PSG have faced very few obstacles domestically this season. And ironically enough, that could be one of their biggest obstacles in their quest for European success. Interesting. Interesting, Mossy. As always, uh, interesting. So uh, I I guess it comes down to, and and it's not even necessarily a soccer question, it's a a sports question, maybe even a life question. Can you turn it on and off? Um, And if you can't turn it on and off, is it... Is it your fault, either the player's fault, is it the coach's fault, or is it nobody's fault because you're just blaming the league that you actually, uh, that you actually play in? And, and by the way, this, this phenomenon, while it's 
exaggerated here from a Liverpool perspective, for example, and we don't always see it when it comes to a thing. The haves and the have-nots and that separation that we always talk about, that's, that's nothing new. So if you're a player and you go play there, you recognize that because of the amount of money, because of the history, because of the coaching, because of the facilities, uh, just and because of the sheer talent that you are surrounded with, that you, when you step on the field in a league match, 70 to 80% of the time, you're going to win the game just because the team isn't, that you're playing isn't as good as you. That's a wonderful security to have when you step on the field. But like you said, that security at times can create a situation where then when you step on the field and those games that we recognize are, are few and far between, but when you finally do, can you, turn, can you turn it on? But Real Madrid has been able to do that over the years. Okay, Barcelona has been able to do that o- over the years. And I think you're... I think you're almost giving them an out or an excuse that isn't that isn't quite valid because if you play on a super club, turning it on and off is ultimately what you're judged for. Well, let's I tease this in the monologue. Let's address this. There is this growing narrative. Uh, I think it comes from Liverpool haters who are trying to rain on their parade, but there is this narrative that Liverpool are benefiting from the Premier League not being that good this season. If you look at the other big six, all of them are having disappointing campaigns to some degree. If Liverpool were to get knocked out by Atletico Madrid and then go on to win the Premier League by 20 points and smash all these records along the way, do you think their European failure would detract a little bit from their domestic success? Would it make you look at Liverpool differently and wonder if maybe they were that great a team or if it was more a reflection of, of the Premier League being down? I think the fact that they are running away with it has already detracted from their success. Now, I've ar- also argued that even if Liverpool lose a few games, they, they I can still make the valid argument, I think, that this is one, if not the greatest club team that we have seen in the history of the game. Having said that, because this is happening in this specific time frame where they are so far ahead, and if I was Liverpool, if I'm my good friend Keith Costigan or uh, our good friend Zach Kenworthy, I'd be saying, I'm looking at it the other way. It's not that the rest of the teams aren't as good. It's that Liverpool is so much better. <laughs> so that's the way that I would, the, the way that I, that I would frame it. But uh, when, when I look at what is happening right now with Liverpool, this is one of those great teams. But it, this, the, the title's been won, and it's been won for a long time. And so the longer that you have, I'm not saying they're not, they're not going to celebrate and they're not going to have mass celebrations, but it, it loses a little bit of the luster because it's been decided for so long. And then you compound that with not going on. And I'm not saying they have to win Champions League, but if they were to bomb out and do it against uh, Atletico, yeah, that would be that would be another. You would be giving people fodder, and people because it's Liverpool, everyone's looking for that. Uh, listen, I think both things can be true. The Premier League is down this season, but this Liverpool team is transcendently great. What they're doing is amazing, and regardless of what happens in the Champions League, I think it deserves to be celebrated. And mind you, I still think they're going to go through in this tie, <laughs> but it, it's going to be tough because Atletico Madrid. Roy Smith wrote a great piece about how the best thing that could happen for Atletico Madrid, who were having a disappointing season, Simeone was getting questioned, but it was to go into a match as decided underdogs because they got to sort of, you know, heart, you know 
know, get back to their old identity that they had, they, had, they had somehow lost. And Atletico got under Liverpool's skin. Atletico, they're very much like a South American team in terms of their chicanery. They're kind of like the Uruguay of European club football. Uh, to use a basketball analogy, kind of the bad boy Pistons. And boy, you could tell they got under Liverpool's skin a little bit, uh, which adds some real juice to the second leg. And now they got Jerome Felix back. He scored this past weekend against Villarreal. If they ever get one at Anfield, Liverpool would need three. So I still think Liverpool go through, but it's going to be a very nervy second leg at Anfield. Well, you know, to see a, I guess, it rattled or miffed type of uh, Jurgen Klopp Oh, that warmed the cockles of my heart. <laughs> uh, and it was wonderful. And it was interesting to hear him do that old thing where, well, we play pretty. And we, 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 we believe in the, the game should be played in the right way. And if they're happy playing that way and parking the bus and defending and they sell out the stadium and they're fine with that, then that's fine. But it was, I mean, it was shade as, as much and an irritated type of Jurgen Klopp as much as, as we've seen, and it was wonderful. Uh, switching to the other match I referenced in my monologue, in addition to the issue with the formation, I think playing in Liga also influenced the way Tuchel handled Neymar. Neymar picked up a minor injury two and a half weeks before the Dortmund game, and Tuchel was so paranoid about having him available for that Dortmund game, he decided not to play him at all in that period leading up to it. And so Neymar took the field against Dortmund not having played in two and a half weeks, and he said afterwards, look, I lacked rhythm, and I think the club was overly paranoid. I was fine. I would have liked to have played in some of those games leading up to today to be in a little better flow. And, you know, that's a decision that Tuchel doesn't make if he's in an ultra-competitive league, fighting for the title, playing in big games. So that's where maybe being singularly obsessed with the Champions League actually can lead you into making a mistake, perhaps. Yeah, but we're the first ones, uh, or coaches are the first ones at times, to, to, to talk about fighting on two fronts. And so when, when a team is fighting a, a, a domestic battle against somebody, whether it's Barcelona, Real Madrid, or Man City versus Liverpool, and so, oh, they're fighting on two fronts, and they got to gear up, and they're having such, you know, difficult uh, and pressure-filled type of moments in club, and then they have to transfer that. And now we're saying that because they're not fighting on two fronts, they're only really fighting on one front, someone like Liverpool, oh, that's too bad. So, so you, you, can't have it, you can't have it both ways. If you're going to scream and yell about fighting on two fronts, okay, then, then fine. But now when that team isn't fighting on two fronts and they're able to rest, either mentally or physically, because they got it in the bag when you're talking about Liverpool, then don't, then don't complain to me when you don't bring it in Europe. Staying on the Neymar thing, I, I thought he was dreadful in that game. I, and I'm the world's biggest Neymar defender, but there are people out there saying, well, he scored a goal, he did his part, it's not his fault. He scored a tap-in where Mbappe did all the work, and he was awful otherwise. He gave the ball away so much. You know, it was one of those days where he catches like Russell Westbrook disease, where he thinks every time he gets the ball, he has to make the play instead of trusting his teammates, moving the ball around, letting the openings uh, come naturally. And so I, I wanted to yank, I reached my hand through the TV and yank him off the field. I, this was very frustrating performance for him. And, and then he gets himself sent off this past weekend against Bordeaux. So we're sort of back to square one with him. I mentioned how he had been playing really well. And a, and a few weeks ago, the narrative was that this is a more mature Neymar. Gab Mercati was writing pieces about it. And, and now between the birthday party and this performance and the red card, we're sort of, you know, back to him, you know, being a punching bag here and rightly so. And, you know, this second leg 
is going to occur almost in the three-year anniversary of that incredible Barcelona second leg against PSG, which was really, if you think about it, the last time he did anything that really moved the needle globally in a positive sense. And boy, he's about due for like a big performance and a big moment to kind of reinvigorate his brand. And I really hope it comes in the second leg against All right, right, well, let's finish it off here because what I do hear you saying is you hate Neymar, uh, number one. Uh, Number two, and, and this is a question to you and this is how we'll end it because it goes right back to what you said. If you are the coach of Liverpool or PSG, would you rather be involved in a title race, a tight competitive title race, okay, uh, and obviously p- uh, playing in Europe and how it relates to Europe, or not have to worry about the title race and deal with Europe? The title race, like I said, the Liverpool. You want to fight example, on two fronts. Yes, you think I your think, team is better when it's fighting exactly a, a competitive situation, yeah. when it's in I, a competitive think, environment, I, and fighting on two. Yes, fronts. I think Liverpool benefited last season from having big game after big game and sort of being in that flow, right. and, and I think they're worse off this season. Let me just say too, I know Alex Dad is holding up the card, but I have multiple more points to make, so this segment's going to run a little long. Right. Wafa made a, a pretty significant change, I thought, prior to last season, doing away with the cup-tied rules, which meant that a player could now play for one club in the group stage and play for a different club in the knockout stage. I thought this was going to revolutionize the January transfer market. Frankly, it really hasn't. But Dortmund in that first leg against PSG became the first real beneficiaries of this rule changing, being able to field Erlen Holland, uh, who had scored eight goals in the group stage for Salzburg and then had that incredible performance for Dortmund against PSG. Looking ahead to that PSG-Dortmund second leg, it's an interesting one because we cover Dortmund on a regular basis. Fun team now yep. with Holland and Reina and Sancho, but they have their own mental fragility issues too and a knack for uh, not coming up big when it matters. Meanwhile, PSG are coming apart at the seams. So I don't know. Th- putting PSG and Dortmund in a pressure-packed big game, it's like the resistible force against the movable object. Like, who, <laughs> you know, who, who, wh- which way do you lean there? I mean, I, we'll talk about it when it gets yeah. closer, but I mean, wh- what's your initial thought there? I, I, like you, feel that Dortmund is ripe. There, there is that Dortmund mo- moment that is coming. And uh, as is often the case, it comes at the worst, uh, worst possible moment. So as positive and uh, as wonderful as Dortmund has been, I think they are still susceptible. And then very quickly, Atalanta, great story. They hammer Valencia 4-1. They're not even playing in their home stadium. They're playing their games at the San Siro. I do think, though, it was 4-0, and then Cheryshev scored a goal to make it 4-1. I think that gives Valencia a lifeline. They're very good at home. A 3-0 they go through. They get an early goal at the Mestalla, and that one could get interesting. So I don't think that one is completely in the bag. And then... I also kind of feel the same thing about Leipzig. They could have put that tie to bed. They were so much better than Tottenham. Instead, they only win 1-0. So they leave the door slightly open for the second leg. I think they go through. But still, you remember, the last Champions League knockout tie Tottenham played was in the semis against Ajax last yeah. season. Lost 1-0 at home and then won 3-2 second leg. Lucas Moore with the hat trick. So, I mean, w- what's your sense there, Leipzig, I just like seeing Jose Mourinho after the game uh, whine and cry about uh, and, and basically throw up his hands and say, yes, but I don't have Son and I don't have... Uh, um, Kane and my my answer to him as it always is if you are this incredible coach manager coach your team coach them up there will be people that were kill or die to have your problems that you have and they always when coaches do this they always sound they're never going to look good they always sound disingenuous when uh, when it happens because nobody wants to coach anymore they just want to buy talent and then and then that, that's but that's not coaching and we'll end on this. Uh, German clubs 5-0 in yeah. Europe last week. You know, we cover the Bundesliga, so we're unabashedly supportive of the German clubs. Uh, what it's was great. your thought on that? Yeah, that's great. I thought it was it, – it, I think it shows that competitive nature of a league 
that maybe doesn't exist in other places that can translate to uh, to Europe. And you know, Bundesliga is not perfect, uh, but it it is a really interesting league, and especially in the way that they foster talent and play young talent and give those give young players the opportunity and don't they're not the players that they put out don't seem to be awed by the situation and that's uh, uh that's fun to see but week to week these these perceptions of leagues and teams can change so uh it'll be fun to see anything else mossy nope all right moving on ask alexi Okay, it's time for uh, Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms. And you ask us some questions or comments and concerns, and we pick two or three of them each week, And uh, as we've done here. And uh, what do the people want to know this week, Mossy, in Ask Alexi? Or Ask Mossy, we've talked about. Yeah, you can do that too with that hashtag. First up, at Soccer Lube. Do you ag- <laughs> all right. Do you agree with Jermaine Jones' opinion on Bruce Arena's national team coach? Uh, what he's alluding to there, Mr. Lube, is uh, Jermaine Jones did an interview with our dear, dear friend Grant Wall, in which, uh, with all due respect, he had quite a bit to say. Yeah, it was nuts. And look, you you put a microphone uh, or tape recorder, nobody uses tape recorders anymore, but you put a recorder in in front of somebody now, uh, in front of Jermaine Jones, and you just let it go. Uh, He is a a interviewer's dream because of the things that he says. Now, and I'm not going to get into a a million different things they said because there were a million different things. He took shots at everybody, uh, whether it's individuals uh, or whether it's the system, uh, got into his whole personal life and the craziness that uh, that it is. Uh, Just in general, go ahead and read the article because it is fascinating and it's an amazing peek inside a um, very interesting mind, shall we say. I didn't think he did himself uh, any, I think he did himself a disservice, actually, because ultimately you find out that Jermaine Jones wants to be a coach. And I don't think that this article and the things that he said helped him to that end. Uh, and he talks about his concierge service of helping players that come over here and facilitating. Um, you know, entertainment and nights out and uh, travel and all that kind of stuff for players that come over here, which is which is all fine and well. But if anybody needs uh, somebody managing and facilitating and guiding and steering, it seems like it's it's Jermaine Jones because uh, this was not a good look. I don't think it's Jermaine, and you can just shrug your shoulders and say it's Jermaine. But I actually felt that um, the entire article, I felt bad for Jermaine to be quite honest with you, because I do think that there is some, some good there and it gets obliterated by the, not just the, what he says, but the way that, that, that he says stuff. Now, in particular to Soccer Lube here, uh, Bruce Serena, who he called, I think, the, the worst coach that, they, that he has ever had uh, of the national team and took him to task, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I disagree. I've had Bruce Serena. I've known him for, for years. I, uh, he coached me actually in the 1996 uh, Olympics. And let's not forget, despite the fact that he will forever and rightfully be associated and connected with the biggest failure, uh, men's, women's, uh, of American soccer in not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, he is also associated and will forever be associated with the best finish, uh, which was in 2002, a handball away from taking the United States men's national team to a semifinal of a World Cup. And as is the case with 
all people out there, you are not just one thing. You are collections of things and sometimes even competing things out there. So I think that Bruce Serena is a specific type of coach in the way that he approaches management. I think like any coach, he will rub some people the wrong way and some people might not like him, but I think that Bruce Serena is a legend for a reason. And that's because I think he's one of the great uh, coaches that not just American soccer, but American sports has produced. I find him to be a fascinating figure because many people in American soccer circles have told me that Bruce Arena, from an X's and O's standpoint, is incredibly limited. And I try to reconcile how that can be true. And also, he could have won five national championships, five MLS Cups, and guided the United States to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. I mean, do you think he gets a bad rap there, or X's and O's aren't his strength, but he makes up for it because he's good in other areas of coaching? Well, I think he, he definitely makes up for at least the perceived lack of knowledge. And look, Bruce understands X's and O's a whole lot more than people realize, in that he understands how X's and O's can be bullshit, okay? <laughs> and he cuts through all of that and gets down to the core of what needs to be done. Because you can X and O something to death. But at the end of the day, if it's you need to be able to kick this ball from point A to point B, that's what Bruce Arena will do. And sometimes people don't like to hear that, either players or journalists or the public out there. They don't, they don't like to hear that. And sometimes people hide behind X's and O's and get into the weeds when it comes to uh, the X's and O's. And I'm not saying that tactics and X's and O's aren't important. And there's plenty that comes with Bruce Serena when it comes to tactics. But he also recognizes that when those players get out there, they have to be able to do it. And they have to be able to do it. And they can't make the excuse that it's tactics or it's X's and O's. And oftentimes, I think we cover up what amounts to human error simply with well, the X's and O's weren't there. The tactics, uh, the tactics weren't there. But Bruce is is much more tactical. He has much more tactical acumen than people give him credit for it. But he doesn't need to use it and doesn't want to use it because he understands that sometimes when you use it, you're just covering up. And we've talked about this a lot recently, so we don't have to get into it again. But Jermaine has a bug up his ass about like MLS versus European sure. leagues and the composition of the U.S. national team. He basically is on the Jurgen Klisman page that every American player should be looking to go to Europe, and anything you do in Europe holds a lot more value than what you do in MLS. And so that's always going to come up in any Jermaine. Yeah, that's and that's a you know that's an evergreen type of topic. And you know, I, I look we've we've worked with uh, Jermaine uh, before, and uh, I. I enjoy spending time with him because I do think that he he's interesting. You just have to get to that interesting stuff. I just didn't think that he he came this. I didn't think he came off well in uh, in this article, and it was by his own making. And uh, for someone that wants to coach, probably be a better pathway <laughs> for him uh, in terms of uh, the the public perception of him. But there's some people that that think that he's telling us what we don't want to hear or haven't heard before, and that he's a, mess, a messiah type of thing that is actually giving American soccer the truth and the hard truth that uh, so often we haven't heard or, like I said, don't want to hear. 
At Bobby WWS, does an MLS team actually have a chance to win Champions League since it begins in the MLS preseason? Serious question, in case you thought he was joking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've said before that eventually it's going to happen. But when it does, it's not going to necessarily mean that Major League Soccer is better than Liga MX, although we will frame it as such and we will celebrate it as such. And if you're MLS, of course you're going to do that. Also, when it happens, uh, and it absolutely could happen this uh this week, when we talked about last, or this, excuse me, this year, and we talked about it last pod in that I think the, the most direct path would be a Seattle. I'm doing the, we're recording this on a Monday, I am doing the Atlanta, the return leg of Atlanta Motagua uh, tomorrow uh, on, our, uh, on our network, and I think Atlanta is going to go through without a, without a problem. It's just a matter of when they, when they finally get to play, for the most part, let's be honest, the Liga MX teams. Do they have enough in a home and away type of series to figure it out? It will happen. And it, and it may happen. It may be Seattle this year. You could, I could see Atlanta uh, doing it. But when it happens, it's going to be that much more special because it will have been done with one foot behind their back. We've talked about the challenges that this tournament poses, in particular to Major League Soccer clubs. And I don't think that that should get lost. But I also don't think that we should be whining about it. Everybody understands that it's not, quote-unquote, fair. Well, welcome to life. Life isn't fair, and soccer isn't fair. And guess what? CCL isn't, isn't fair. Get over it. Stop crying and whining about it and figure out how to win it without saying, well, we should change the season. You know what? Figure out, coach them up. Find a way to do it. And when you do it, I will not only give you credit, but I will give you increased credit because you did it with one foot behind your back. And you did see last see, last week all the MLS teams get tired in the second half, surrender late goals, blowing leads, which I think speaks to the lack of fitness. So it is an issue. And I, I think there's this feeling that if you cater your preseason in such a way that to be in better shape for these CCL games, you're sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul because you're going you're gonna to pay the price for it later on. MLS, it's such a grind. Um, and, and LAFC, to me, got the worst of it in terms of the draw because they had to play a very good Mexican team that can take advantage of their lack of fitness. I mean, Carlos Vela's belly was, like, bigger than mine in that game. Whoa! <laughs> wow! And, and, I mean, <laughs> I, I will say this, this, though, in defense of MLS. We may very well be sitting here at the conclusion of this CONCACAF Champions League campaign and still be talking about how MLS teams are lagging behind Liga MX and what do they have to do to catch up, whether it's change the calendar or alter the salary cap. But... I can't go there after one game. I mean, there were people, as soon as that Leon LAFC game went final, that already had those tweets in the chamber ready to go. This just shows you again, they're never going to beat them until they change this and that. Maybe, but can we wait and see how this season plays out before we already <laughs> start peddling that Not narrative? Not for nothing, but LASC had opportunities to score. Vela missed one, Rossi missed one. I mean, so, it, but once again, it's just, it drives me to stop whining. Stop. It makes MLS and the teams that do this that much it makes it that much worse. You're exasperating what we all recognize is not an ideal situation. So anyway, I guess stop whining, stop being such a little baby. Is we could use that for a lot of things in life, right, Mossy? All right, what else, Mossy? Uh, one on this at Kfine39. Your thoughts on team chemistry from your experience? Do players need to like each other to play well and have success, or can they all hate each other but show up and be professional? Hashtag go Rutgers. Yeah, there we go. That's that's a, a direct route to our Ask Alexi uh, segment here. Uh, definitely, are you? No, you do not have to. As a matter of fact, if you are on a team where everybody likes each other, 
then consider yourself lucky. You are in the minority. I cannot think of a single team where I liked everybody on the team. Now, I, I didn't hate them, although there were some, some that probably fit that description. And likewise, I'm, I guarantee that not everybody liked me, and there were certainly some that probably hated me. What you have to do is respect, respect, not respect them, but respect their ability to do things that you can't do that enable you to win. That's all, all that you have to do. Now look, the ideal is everybody likes each other, it's kumbaya, you respect everybody, you have a good time, you have a relationship and a social relationship that is positive outside the locker room and outside the team setting. But the reality is that you, you know, you're putting 20, 25, oftentimes type A type of individuals into a locker room with egos and histories and baggage and competition and all the other things that come with a, a, a team and stuff's going to happen. So, no, you do not need to like each other in order to play well or to have success. K fine 39. Mossy, anything else? That is it. All right, that is the end of Ask, ask Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi. You can also use Ask Mossy out there. Uh, and ask us your questions, comments. Send us your questions, your comments and concerns. And like we just did, uh, we will pick out three each week. And uh, who knows? You may appear on Ask Alexi. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for our Back Three, where we look at some big stories, games, moments out there. Mossy, what's in our Back Three this week? We begin in England. I don't know if you're aware, but they're having a bit of an issue with VAR this season. In the <laughs> I hadn't Premier heard, League. no. Uh, the latest controversy, Chelsea defeated Tottenham this past weekend, and in that game, Giovanni Lo Celso committed a very hard foul on Cesar Aspilicueta, which... Most everybody watching felt like should have been a red card, but uh, VAR reviewed it and did not assess a red card. Okay. And then the Premier League put out a statement shortly thereafter admitting that that was a mistake. In-game, they put out a statement admitting uh, there was a game. Wow. Uh, well, let's talk to our uh, resident Blue, right? They call them the Blues over there, the, uh, the Chelsea guys. Uh, Alex, uh, first and foremost, when you saw this uh, egregious tackle, uh, did you think immediately that is a red card? Not right off the bat, I would say, just based on the camera angle and all that stuff, but I will say that... So you had that to see replays. You had to see, see some replays. I a replay from field level to see the force and the location of the stamp, which was basically, as they say, a leg breaker, and was surprised that Espilicueta was A, able to carry on, and B, not seriously injured, and thus probably Giovanni Lo Celso should have got a red card. Okay. Not so, probably, absolutely should okay, have got so, a red card. But but you do admit uh, and recognize that this was a subjective moment in terms of the judgment that was made in that the men and women, whether they're on the field or they're upstairs or wherever the VAR room is, are looking at a situation and they're just assessing whether they think it's a red card or not, right? Yes, I can okay, agree with that. It was a subjective that. moment, right? Yes. But then they come back after they say no red card to the dismay of all of you uh, blue clouded minds out there, right? Correct. And they come back, and maybe even some other folks even on the other side saying, well, we really got away with one there. They come back later in the game and tell us, sorry, we made a mistake. It actually should have been a red. Is that what happened? That is correct. Yes. It's so very unprecedented, I would say. Yeah. I mean, so just when I think the English couldn't, can't screw up VAR anymore, they basically say, they, they tell themselves to hold their own beer and then they go and do something, something like this. That... That's uh, that's a little crazy. Now, having seen the play, 
I would have had no problem with a red card there, uh, with that stomping. At, at the moment that we were watching it this weekend, we saw it and they said, yeah, that's that's got to be a red card. And when it wasn't given a red card, the sheepish look of some of the players and probably of the opposition told, told you a lot. So, but they can't go back now and give that person a red card because they, they, they recognize they made a mistake. Do you think that they should have said they made a mistake or they should have just let it go? Do they make it even worse by saying they made a mistake? I think given the result, you can sort of, if, if Chelsea would have gone on to lose or, you know, usually when these events happen, a guy like Lacelso or someone that should have got a red card winds up scoring a game winner, making right. a decisive play, and then it just makes it all the more worse. But since they got away, it's, it's okay. But yeah, for the most part, I think re-refereeing, all that does is just create yeah, even more of a farce as has been the buzzword that is surrounding the game. Why do you think that the English can't figure this out? What, why, why are they having so many problems? And it's not, whether it's other leagues, Bundesliga that we cover, or MLS, or other leagues that use it, it's not as if they, they don't have times where people disagree. But the weekly, game after game type of problems that they seem to have, is it an implementation problem? Is it a technical problem? Is it a personnel problem? What do you think, Masi? I don't know. It's a difficult question to answer. Yeah. Uh, I know Alex Dowd thinks that in other leagues, the referee is more prone to go to the monitor, while in the Premier League, not so much. Is that yeah, your I feel theory? I feel like in the Premier League, there's this resistance to using a pitch side monitor where the on-field referee, if, you know, VAR can buzz down and say, hey, you should check this out again. The man or woman that's on the field making the calls can go look, see, oh, yeah, I made a mistake. I should have called something there. Then everyone could move on and agree with it. But now you're just adding another layer of this obscurity of this mystery person, yeah, but, this Wizard of Oz that is making these calls. But the center ref we know is in charge, and ultimately that person makes the final decision. However, the trust that they put, and it's it's justified in that you're putting trust in multiple human beings that have a much better idea and, and vantage point because they have the technology at their disposal. So the move to the screen, it is a bit of a performance. It's just designed to help make everybody feel a little better that everything was exhausted. And I'm not saying that's a reason that just because it's a performance doesn't mean you should do it. Because what I'm hearing is that even that move will help to calm a little bit of the jitters and the fears and the problems uh, that are out there. So if just going over to a screen is actually going to make VAR in England at least be perceived both internally in the stadium and externally as we're watching, be perceived as better and more thorough, then just implement it. I mean, just just have them do that. A ship has one captain for a reason. You can't have someone yelling instructions from beyond I yeah. think everybody on board yes, would agree with the yes, captain. Yes, but when you delegate say. and you give responsibilities to others, part of leadership, okay, is recognizing when to accept feedback and accept. If you're going to have peop, other people do things, then you have to give them ownership and you have to give them the ability to actually do their job, as opposed to constantly second guessing them or constantly having to go and review what they have already done. That's not efficient, okay, and ultimately that's not smart. I don't know. One, one quick thought uh, on the field, Premier League. I was thinking about this this weekend. Chelsea, Manchester United, and Arsenal have all gone this sort of ex-player route that we talk about, hiring a guy who may not have the greatest coaching resume, but he played at your club, so he right. quote-unquote understands the culture. And those types of guys, the fans' natural inclination is to like them, to support them, to give them the benefit of the doubt. 
Um, while Tottenham went for Mourinho, who to me is like sticking out like a sore thumb right now. You know, you have Klopp and Pep who are in a class of their own and arguably the two best managers in the world. They've they've earned the support from the fans just based on their incredible success. Sure. And then you have these, in terms of the big six I'm talking about, you have these three other guys that are ex-player types, Lampard, Solskjaer, and Arteta. And then you have Mourinho there who, I don't know how... Tottenham fans feel about him right now. And I'm really wondering what the plan is at Tottenham. Even Manchester United, who we, we crap on so much, I mean, at least they have some good young players, Rashford, Martial, Greenwood. They have a, a likable manager. They spend money. They're getting linked to guys like Sancho. They might not get him, but at least it's something that Manchester United fans can sort of dream about. And I have no idea what the plan is at Tottenham for the next two or three years with Mourinho there and Levy and how much money are they going to spend. I don't know what, what they're trying to be. Or are they still trying to get up to that but Liverpool manager? Well, but what level. are you saying? That they should hire an ex-player? I don't know. I, it just really dawned on me uh, that this this weekend that Manchester United are actually in a better place as a club right now, I think, than Tottenham, which is amazing to say given what a mess they've been and the fact that Tottenham were in the Champions League final last season. But I don't know. I, re- I really feel that right now. I, I'm not sure what the, what the plan is at Tottenham. I, maybe one will reveal itself. Uh, well, we've, we've talked about the fact that while as an ex-player I recognize that I, am, uh, that I have the benefit of that and at times I am, and doors open up because of that, whether that's fair or not, it, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's fair in the sense that people see a possible experience that could be beneficial, but it's unfair in that somebody that is maybe even, not even, but much more qualified will be overlooked or bypassed simply because he or she has not had a career playing the game. And that's that's ridiculous. Uh, so when I look at, at Spurs, is it a function of the fact that you have somebody coaching who doesn't have a stellar resume as a player or it's simply because it's Jose Mourinho. I don't know. Just something that dawned on me. All uh, right, but okay. uh, Of those, you know, obviously, like I said, Klopp and Pepper in their own category. And then if you take the other four of the big six, three of them have gone this sort of ex-player route and one hasn't. And he's sort of sticking out like a sore thumb in terms of how the fans are uh, perceiving. But there's there's plenty of history of ex-players who have no clue what they are doing. And it was kind of interesting that Arsenal faced Everton this past weekend because I, I, I talked about this in the pod. Under normal circumstances, the managers would have been flipped there. Ancelotti makes a lot more sense at a club like Arsenal, and Arteta should be cutting his teeth at a club like Everton, which he also played for them for many years. But because of this sort of ex-player fetish now, Arsenal opted for a guy who had never managed the game before versus a guy who's won three Champions League titles and league titles in four different oh. countries. And so <laughs> instead, it was Arteta for Arsenal and, and Ancelotti for Everton this weekend, which was kind of funny. But moving on. Yeah, let's go on. Uh, Germany, incredible title race going on. The top three all won this past weekend. Bayern beat Paderborn. Leipzig hammered Schalke, and yeah. Dortmund brushed aside Bremen. And you cut it off there, right? You view Gladbach and Leverkusen as the best of the second yes. tier, but you don't really view them in the context of the title race, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm willing to give a little time to Gladbach just because of kind of what they have done, but I, I yeah, they are kind of that second tier. I do want to talk about Gio Reyna for a second because up to now, the story had been, hey, isn't it great that a club like Dortmund is willing to throw on a 17-year-old in these pressure situations? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this past weekend was the first weekend where it shifted to a little bit, why isn't he starting? You feel like he's maybe done enough that it it wouldn't kill him to give him a start at at this point, right? Yeah, I I thought that this might be the weekend where he does. I think at some point you have to kind of see what he is as a starter. And uh, look, he's still, 
playing beyond his years, but he is still a young player, and there's still going to be moments where he's going to have to adjust and go through some periods. But I think there's times where players come along where you're doing them a disservice by holding them back. I don't ne- I'm not necessarily sure that holding him back and being patient is going to make him that much of a better or different player going forward. And so, and I know the American in me wants to see this American be given that, uh, that opportunity, but each and every time he gets on the field, he does stuff that if you didn't know he was 17 years old, you would look at him and say, well, that's just a seasoned player. And Hercules Gomez came out last week. I mean, he's bullish that uh, Reyna should be starting for the U.S. senior team. Are, are you there already? already? Uh, starting? I don't know. I mean, he should be called in to, you know, once again, we've, I, I give you the form as fallacy. So just because he is starring in the Bundesliga and starring for uh, uh, Borussia Dortmund doesn't mean that he automatically should be starting and will start and, or, uh, or, or will star for the U.S. men's national team. I will say this. I thought that he was for the next cycle. And maybe when all is said and done, he will be. I've changed my mind in that I do think that he is much farther along than I thought he was ever going to be. And just the reality of where the U.S. men's national team is right now, they can benefit from a player like him, regardless of his age. Just the way, just the player that he is, I think they can benefit from. I will say, in a hypothetical world in which Dortmund was going to release him for either and the U.S. had a choice, I think we're on the same page on this. Although he's good enough for the senior team, I would send him to the Olympic qualifiers in March because it's just friendlies with the senior team. The important thing is him being in the squad for the Nations League and the Hex, which I think he will be. But for March, I actually think his greatest value would be helping you qualify for the Olympics, which, as we've talked about, is uniquely Absolutely. important this year. Now, I think Dortmund's going to end up making that decision for you because right. they don't have to release him for the Olympic qualifying. They have to release him for the senior team friendlies. And with the role that he's carving out on the team in the crunch time of their season, they're not going to let him go for a couple of weeks to play in an under-23 tournament. So it's going to be senior team or nothing. And the question becomes, is he in the senior team squad? And yeah, I think he will be. I think I'm. it's going to be hard to swallow if I see players playing in those in for the national team, the full national team, that are eligible to play for the Olympic team at the, at the same time. And I know there's a back and forth, and like you said, they don't have to release players. But if you are given a player to play for the U.S. in that moment, and you have to pick between the two, I think you put all of your eggs into this Olympic basket because I think it's going to pay dividends not just a couple of years from now in a World Cup, but as we get into qualifying right now, I, I, I can't stress how important the Olympic team and qualifying for the Olympics can be to the qualification that starts this fall and then obviously doing well fingers crossed, in a World Cup in 2022. One last Bundesliga point. I know Alex's head's going to explode. We're running way long today. But uh, we've talked about young Americans flocking to Germany and also young Englishmen. There's also a lot of good young French players in the Bundesliga. And PSG, there has been for a number of years. Right. So. PSG has a sneaky good youth system, but none of those players ever get a chance because of the big stars they sign. And the Bundesliga has figured out that that's a pretty good pond to, to fish in. And and two this weekend that caught my attention, Musa Diaby scored for Leverkusen, and Christopher Nkunku had an incredible game for, for assists. Leipzig. Four assists. Mm-hmm. He's up to 11 assists this season, third behind only Sancho and Muller. So that's something to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a strategy that the Bundesliga, and they're very, very smart at what they do on and off the field. And they recognized all of this talent that didn't cost them a lot, that either didn't want to or couldn't go to the EPL, 
And I think, I think French players also looked at, hey, I can go to the Bundesliga. I can make some good money. I can play in a really good league. I can use it possibly to go someplace else. So, yeah, I mean, that they have mined that, and they've been very, very good at doing that. And we'll end on this. Champions League uh, round of 16 continues this upcoming week, mm-hmm. um, and storylines abound in these games. Uh, Tuesday, you have Chelsea hosting Bayern, uh, Napoli hosting Barcelona. Napoli, Barcelona, the, the big thing there is Messi going to Maradona's former home. You can bet if he scores a goal that in any way resembles a goal that Maradona scored, you're going to see those clips side by side. Barcelona have won three straight in all competitions, starting to feel better about themselves now on top of the La Liga table. So, I mean, Messi scored four goals this past weekend, so he's rolling. Uh, so you expect, uh, you think Messi will sort of relish being able to play in the stadium that Maradona, you know, started in? And, yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, it's uh, having a diminutive left-footed player running around in that stadium, <laughs> Argentinian, excuse me, uh, a playmaker running around that stadium. I mean, the parallels and the and the comparisons that have, I guess, dogged Messi for, for so many years will be on full display. And Messi has a tendency to rise to the occasion. And then also Tuesday, I mentioned uh, Chelsea host Bayern. This is a rematch of the 2012 final, although it'll be a bigger deal, the second leg, which is at the Allianz Arena, which was actually the site of that game. This one is at Stamford Bridge. Uh, no N'Golo Conte or Christian Pulisic. Really disappointing that Pulisic is missing out on these big games. Yep. And the last two league games for Chelsea were against Manchester United and Tottenham. Now he misses this first leg against Bayern. Next week they have an FA Cup game against Liverpool. Those are kind of the high-profile games that you wanted to see him play in. So he's missing a real uh, interesting portion of the season here for Chelsea. He is, and we've talked about him potentially getting Wally pipped and all that kind of stuff. But I still think, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, from the, the Blue Nation out there, that people still look at Christian Pulisic as a starter, as a important part going forward. He just obviously has to get has to get healthy. But I don't think that he is out of sight, out of mind yet. Yeah, he hasn't been written off by any means. It's just, again, like you said, what have you done for me lately? Right, right. Then uh, Wednesday, Lyon hosts Juventus. This oh, to me yeah. is the biggest mismatch of this round. Ronaldo's flying. He scored in 11 straight Serie A games. Wouldn't put it past him to, to have a big game here. I think Juventus will, will dust off Lyon over two legs. And then, to me, the, the tastiest uh, matchup of this whole round, Real Madrid face Manchester City. The, the two coaches, you know, we talked about in England that this ex-player fetish. To me, these are the two guys that ushered in this era. Pep and Zidane, with the success that they've had, a combined five Champions League titles between the two of them. I mean, how fascinating are you to, to see those two guys on the sideline managing against each other? Well, you know what I, how I feel about manager matchups and <laughs> stuff like that. It doesn't excite me and doesn't. it's not as, as sexy as people make it, uh, make it out to me. So I'm much more excited for the players on the field. You know, the, the big news is Eden Hazard leading up to this one. Uh, came Just came back from a long-term injury absence and then uh, suffered another injury uh, this past weekend against Levante. Looks like he might be out for the season. Broken which, ankle. Yeah, Jeez. which, you know, our last podcast of 2019, I remember we went through all the biggest transfers from the summer and talked about buyers or more or whatnot. And in looking back at that, I was maybe a little too generous to Eden Hazard. And I said, well, you know, it hasn't been great so far, but I think it's trending in the right direction and it's going to all work out. This now, and look, it's not the guy's fault he got hurt, but I think we have to look at this season for him as just a catastrophe. I mean, he showed up overweight, so it took him a while to get going. And then even when he got going, it wasn't translating in goals and assists. Then these injury problems, and he is going to end a hundred million euro signing is is probably going to end his first season at Real Madrid with one goal, which is just... So is this a... Coutinho-esque type of situation where... I know he's injured, but... 
even even if he wasn't injured, are they already starting to look for it? I mean, I, I Jaden Sanchez, uh, you know, yeah, it... I think there's some similarities there for sure. And now you wonder who's Adonis going to turn to. Could it possibly be Gareth Bale getting another chance, which would be unbelievable? <laughs> because to me, the whole. Uh, Madrid fans and media being unfair to Bale was like a very six months ago narrative that people who don't follow La Liga, that's still their sort of reflexive thing anytime they hear Bale's name. To me, this season, he has been a disgrace mm-hmm. and deserving of the scorn. He, he, I don't know. To me, it's like either, either force a move away or if you're going to stay there, try to win them over. Instead, he's opted to stay, but he's just sort of carried himself as if he doesn't care. And he's had these bizarre long injury absences where nobody can can put a finger on what's wrong with him. And then when he plays, he's kind of mailing in games. He has three goals in 17 games this season. So, I, I mean, I, I guess he might get another chance here because Adan does not trust at all the two young Brazilians, Vinicius and Rodrigo. And that, that's a conversation for another day. So <laughs> I think I think it's it's going to be... It's Anti-Brazilian. Gonna be, it's it's going to be either a, it's either a 4-4-2 with Bale and Benzema up top, or he might go to that five midfielder formation that he unveiled in the Spanish Super Cup, which would be Casemiro, Cruz, Modric, Valverde, and Isco all in the same lineup with just Benzema up top. But scoring goals has been the big issue for Real Madrid. If they can't figure it out over these two legs, they're going to lose to City, a City side that, as we all know, is playing against the backdrop of this Champions League <laughs> uh, financial fair play issue. So it's going to be fascinating to see how they react. So yeah, I, I can't wait. To me, that's, that's like I said, the, the tie of the round. All right. Well, plenty of great soccer uh, and great soccer games uh, coming up, whether it's happening over in Europe, whether it's happening here uh, in the United States. We talked about CCL, obviously UCL, and um, you know the kickoff of the 25th season of Major League Soccer. So we come to the end of uh, yet another pod. And at the end of each and every pod, we do one for a road. So with the uh, fact that we are going into the 25th anniversary of Major League Soccer, I, I think back to the 95-ish type of time when Major League Soccer was on the horizon. We kicked off, for those that don't know, we kicked off in uh, 1996 in what would have been March or April of uh, 1996. And I think back to even at the time that I was getting ready and knew that I was going to go and play for the New England Revolution, uh, I was still playing over in Italy. And I remember watching on my then uh, completely uh, up-to-date and latest type of laptop computer that I had, and I would dial up my AOL and, you know, the whole old thing with the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> with the modem and I would get on I remember watching the draft that came about and the list of players that were going to play for the New England Revolution and then calling each and every one of them from Italy as my new friends and teammates and we've talked earlier in this pod about whether you need to be friends with everybody but you don't necessarily have to but you should at least try and I wanted to reach out and see how everybody was and I remember calling one of my teammates, his name was Tommy Lips, and uh, you will not know him. Uh, he did not go to, on to any type of uh, you know, major career when it came to Major League Soccer, but he was one of the original members of the 1996 New England Revolution. And I'll never forget <laughs> calling him, and he picked up the phone, and I said, hey, this is Alexi. Uh, I'm calling from Italy, and I just wanted to reach out and uh, see how you're doing. And he hung up on me, and I called him back. 
and he started screaming at me, calling me, I can't remember whatever his best buddy's friend's name, because he thought that his buddy was, uh, that, he, that his buddy was pranking him. And, you know, that's, that's just to say that this was, this came together, and as I said in the State of the Union, uh, this league is a labor of love. And we were all starting something very, very new and very, very different that we, uh, that we all believed in. And when Tommy finally did end up answering the phone and speaking to me, we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, he turned out to be a, uh, a really interesting dude, and he continues to uh, be out there coaching. As a lot of the, I guess what we call old generation of MLS players have gone on to do, they are involved in so many different ways in American soccer. Some prominently, but most of them not prominently, but they are still involved in soccer. And whether it's an actual living or whether it's them uh, just working, uh, coaching, administrators, whatever it ends up being, it's amazing how many are still involved. Because what was created back then wasn't just a league, but it was also jobs. And it was a whole infrastructure uh, and structure, if you will, of American soccer jobs. And a lot of players that started out in the league, played in the league, have gone on and are still uh, and are still involved. And they are still involved in shaping not just Major League Soccer, but shaping the future of, uh, of the league. And while I started off the pod talking about how we have to find a balance, and I don't want to look back too much because I do want to look forward, and I think that's where we should be looking. Uh, this is just to end the pod, me saying thank you to all of the players out there and the men and women off the field that were there from the start that worked so hard to get us to where we are 25 years down the road and to the Tommy Lipses out there that made no money, uh, got very little uh, attention and went off to do uh, different things. They planted that seed that has grown into what the league is right now. And you know, a heartfelt thank you to all of those men and women on and off the field that had the vision and that had the, the work ethic uh, and the belief and the passion and, believe me, the sense of humor that you needed to get through all of those challenges that get us to where we are here in 2020, celebrating a quarter century of Major League Soccer. All right, so here's to another 25 years. Mossy, anything to say before we go? Nope. All right. I want to thank you. Please uh, download, subscribe, review, do all the things out there uh, that you do. Uh, we really appreciate it. We're incredibly privileged to be able to do this each and every work week. We will talk to you again uh, next week. I, 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 as I said, I am on the road for Major League Soccer this week, the kickoff of the, the uh, new season. I'll be in uh, Nashville. We'll see how that goes there with Nashville. Uh, and then I'll be up in Portland to see all my good friends up there in, uh, in Portland. CONCACAF Champions League, I'll be uh, broadcasting with my good friend Keith Costigan uh, when we do the Atlanta game uh, on Tuesday, but we also have games on Wednesday and Thursday, if I'm not mistaken, when it comes to uh, CONCACAF Champions League on uh, FS1 and FS2. So please check those out uh, as we go forward. All right, we will see you next week. And as always, size the day.